You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. So today we're finishing our three-part Christmas series, The Songs of Christmas. And, and you thought that Christmas music was a modern invention? Well, it is not. They have been around since the very first Christmas, actually. And so today we're looking at Zachariah's Christmas song from Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 79. I know originally I said Matthew, but I switched. Um, and I'll, I'll let you know why a little bit later. It's an interesting passage, nevertheless, to land on right on Christmas Eve. You usually want to read through the nativity story, and we kind of have, uh, on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, but we're actually not going to, I'm not going to do that, but don't worry about it. Everything will work out, I promise, I promise. You may or may not know, but in the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke, the, 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 uh, the Gospel that we're in today, you have the nativity story, but it's combined with another one. It's combined with another, uh, another birth story, and it's the story of John, I like to say the baptizer, not the Baptist. He wasn't Baptist. He was just, you know, the baptizer. Anyways, and this is the most detailed account that we have of both here in the Gospel of Luke, the birth of the Lord Jesus and the birth of John the Baptist or the baptizer. That's, that's what I want to focus on this morning. So would you please open up your Bibles to Luke 1, and I'm just going to set up this beautiful and powerful prophecy or song as you get to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to read it in just a second. Now, it really begins with an announcement. If you're familiar with the story, that's great. If not, that's totally fine. So it begins with an announcement where an angel uh, comes to Zechariah, this old priest, and tells him that his barren wife is going to have a child. That's in verses 5 to 25. Now, we're not going to be able to read the whole of, of, of chapter uh, 1 because it's, it's an immense one, but I'm just going to give you a kind of a, kind of a summary of what this uh, you know, chapter is about. So, then you skip down to the end of the chapter, and in verses 57 to 66, John the Baptist is born. And then what follows in verses 67 to 79 is what we call the Benedictus. It's one of the three songs that appear in Luke chapter 1 and 2, and it's called the Benedictus from the Latin Vulgate, which is the, uh, just the, the Latin version of the Bible. So our song is called the Benedictus because it's the translation of the first word um, of the song, which means praise be or praise be to God or blessed be God. Th those uh, were the first words that came out of this priest, Zachariah's mouth, after a period of nine months of not being able to speak. So let's read it together, verses 67 to 79. Would you please stand with me? I'd like to honor God's word as we, as we do that. So Luke 1, 67 to 79. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. 
And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Amen. Father, we thank you for this word. I ask that you would um, bring it to life in our life. I ask that you would bear much fruit, Father. Uh, Help us to not be distracted by anything, to not be distracted by maybe the party that we're going to have tonight or, or, or the good time that we're going to have with our families. I just ask that we would seize this moment and allow you, Holy Spirit, to work at our heart and to change us so that your name would be glorified and so that we, Lord God, would benefit from being in your presence. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as we read through the song... You can see clearly that the theme of Zechariah's song is salvation. I mean, it just comes up so many times. I mean, the word salvation comes up quite a bit. For example, verse 69, Zechariah blesses the Lord and says, Who has raised a horn up a horn of salvation? And then he talks about being delivered in verse 71. And he says, Saved from the hands of our enemies. And then he says that his son, John, He says that he will come to prepare the way of the Lord, verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation, we have again the word salvation, to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. So you cannot miss this theme of salvation in this song. That's what this song is about. Zechariah is singing a song of praise to God about our great and marvelous and amazing and astounding, and miraculous, and mind-blowing, and unbelieving, I have one more, an astonishing salvation. Yes, I went to the, you know, to the dictionary, to Soros, and just the, because we do have such an amazing salvation, amen? We do, and I know that maybe some of us are rolling our eyes in our mind, and are saying, really, that good? <laughs> Actually, yes, even better than I can express in my words. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever gotten a gift for Christmas, not from your spouse or a parent, because they usually know how to give good gifts, that you just absolutely loved? So not from a spouse or a parent. A gift that just blew your mind away. Anyone? You going to remember? Just a few hands. Okay, you're probably very nice to the person that gave you that gift. Now, I don't mean to sound ungrateful, but usually, if it's not from your spouse or if it's not from a parent... Christmas gifts are just, nah. <laughs> they are. They will just disappoint. I think a lot of times it's just useless. It's like, what am I going to do with this? Okay. Am I, is it, okay, I'm probably the only one here, but I'll move on. <laughs> I'll move on. But there's one gift that we can all receive that will never, ever disappoint. A gift that actually exceeds expectation. It exceeds anticipation. It exceeds the satisfaction, the joy, the peace that that you think it'll bring. And that gift is called the gift of salvation. It is truly marvelous. It is truly amazing. It is truly astounding, miraculous, and so on and so on and so on. Now, just because maybe some of us are not excited about it, uh, just because you don't believe that, it doesn't mean that what I'm saying is not true. 
And if you're not a Christian, if you don't call yourself a Christian, but, and you have this kind of a response, nah, what are you talking about, man, really? I am so glad that you are with us this morning. I am. So as we look through this song, I want us to observe four things about this amazing salvation that we have in Christ. Four things. Four things this passage teaches us about this marvelous salvation that Jesus brings to us. So let's set up the scene a little bit. Let's set up the, the backdrop of this famous Benedictus, this famous song. Well, it starts with, and I already said that, it starts with a peculiar dialogue, a conversation between the angel Gabriel and this, this old priest, Zechariah. And the angel brings him some big news, some big news. First, he says, your wife is going to be pregnant, and then you're going to have a boy, and then I have his name. <laughs> it's all set up. It's all done, man. <laughs> like, just imagine that. Like, this is amazing. This is amazing. Now, just so you know, every good and faithful priest, and there were thousands at that time in Israel, thousands of people, of priests, just like Zechariah. So every good and, and faithful priest was praying constantly, especially if you were chosen to serve at the temple, burning incense like Zechariah was in that instance. You would pray for the long-awaited Messiah to come. That was your prayer. Everyone knew that. That's what you're praying for. That's what your focus was. But also we find out that Zechariah had a pretty big personal prayer request on the side. We find out that they have no children. The Bible says that they are they're old. Actually, let's read from verse 11 a few verses down. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the, on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. I mean, just picture that. And fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call him John. And then, if you know the story, then Zechariah said to the angel, and we can read this in verse 18 actually, Do you expect me to believe that? That's pretty much what he said. Now he believed God, but he just didn't believe that God could do this specific thing for them. You know how that feels sometimes? Oh, yeah, I believe God. But when push comes to shove, it's like, yeah, I don't know if I believe. As he was going, I mean, this is, this is us a lot of times. He was going to learn the hard way, right? The way some of us have to learn to actually learn to believe God and to take him at his word. So let's just read actually verse, verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advancing years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. That's <laughs> so funny. He's saying, I'm old. And then, I am Gabriel. <laughs> like, I don't know, it's just funny to me the way he presented himself. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. So long story short, the angel decides to turn his microphone off. He decides to give Zechariah a timeout. <laughs> You're going to be in timeout. He literally shuts his mouth off so Zechariah could not speak or hear anymore. Most commentators think that it, he was actually deaf-mute, like he couldn't speak or, or hear. Anyways, so Zechariah comes out deaf-mute. He's forced to use some form of sign language, and the reason is that he didn't believe. He was actually unbelieving. How many of us are in the same boat? Many times. 
Like Zechariah, you are ready and prepared and faithful to exercise your responsibilities at the temple, to fulfill your duties so faithfully, and yet when push comes to shove, you actually do not believe. We come to church Sunday after Sunday, we read our Bibles, we pray, but when push comes to shove, I don't believe you, God. It's a scary and sobering thought, isn't it? It is. Now think about it. He had nine months to think about what he would say when he got the chance to speak again. Imagine nine months of silence. What would you think? What would you say after nine months? And what I want us to notice is that he doesn't just say anything when he gets his voice back. He doesn't. Notice that he was filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 67. You see, what, what, what he was about to say was, divine revelation it was the unfolding of the promises of god it wasn't just anything it was this glorious announcement of this marvelous and astounding and astonishing and miraculous mind-blowing salvation of the lord through the messiah jesus christ and i want us to notice this this glorious prophecy and announcement was going to come out through the lips of sometimes unbelieving servants of god like you and me, and like Zechariah. How gracious and loving of God to continue to use us in spite of our unfaithfulness so many times, in our moments of unbelief, in our moments of spasmatic belief like Zechariah. He's gracious to use us, isn't he? So Zechariah had nine months of silence to think and to ponder and to pray and to read his Bible, right? Nine months. Now, his silence may have been a divine rebuke, if I may use that, a divine lecture. I used to hate lectures as a little kid, like, just beat me, you know? It was a divine lecture for his unbelief, but please listen to what I'm, I'm, I'm about to say. God always turns his rebukes into rewards if we press in and trust him for those who allow him to break them. Now, it could be that many of us suffer from past you know, like scars of past sins from past bad decisions that got us into places of desperation and pain and suffering. But if we press on and trust God, even in our brokenness, even in our tough situations, He will certainly turn those scars and those marks of sin into memorials of grace. That's what, the, that's what God's Word says. Romans 5.20 says that when sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So if that's your situation, that's my situation, lean into that promise. It's really beautiful. Now, I cannot pass over this experience of Zachariah. I cannot without making an application for us today. Silence, solitude, it's got to speak to us today. If we are not intentional about seeking out silence, spending time with God in prayer and in his word, we will probably not feel the astonishing significance of God's work of salvation in our life, period. We would not be in awe and wonder of what Jesus did for us on the cross. It would quickly turn into, hmm, what's the big deal? Eh, salvation, sure. A laissez-faire attitude towards the most precious and glorious gift. There's a close correlation between stillness. There's a close relation between being still and a sense of the astounding and breathtaking salvation that we have received from Jesus Christ. I think most of us miss it, and I'm not just throwing that out there. I think most people just miss it, and that's because there's way too much noise around us. 
We, and we do nothing to get silent. Gadgets, phones, iPads, TV, radio, constant noise. I'm not even mentioning the constant noise that we hear rattling in our own minds constantly. Some people actually run away from that. They, they love the noise and the distractions on the outside because at least they don't have to put up with the noise inside. <laughs> yes. And even when we actually try to be still and quiet, I, I, it's like someone just turns up the volume just then, and it gets even more noisy and intense. And that's simply because we have no self-discipline to, to, to seek silence out. I, I speak for myself. Remember the verse where God tells us to be still and know that he is God in Psalm 46.10? Oh yeah, everyone knows it, even if you're not a Christian. Another way of saying it would be, be still, be dumb and deaf like Zechariah and know that I am God. There's our translation for today. Let me ask, what would it mean for your life if for nine months you could not hear or say anything? Life would be over, wouldn't it? <laughs> At least it would feel like that. If God should ever give us a period, and I hope that we would turn it into as much good as Zechariah did. Amen? Because when Zechariah came out of that, when he came out and he, he, he came out filled with the Holy Spirit and singing, right, what, what has come to be known as the Benedictus, a song filled with insight and with a sense of the astounding significance of what was about to happen with the birth, birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, let's look at the four things um, about this salvation that Jesus brings to us. Four things that we see in Zechariah's song. Again, we can have more than four, but I just chose to, to observe four or to, to go through four with you. And the first one is this. Salvation always involves a divine visitation. Salvation always involves a divine visitation. Salvation always involves God coming to men. It's never the other way around. God coming to human beings. And you see this, we see this in verse 68. It says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. It's right there. God has visited his people. Of course, Zechariah says this in the past tense, even though the Lord Jesus has yet to be born. But I think he's reflecting on what he himself has already experienced with the angel and the message from God. We already kind of looked at this, but again, this is an amazing thing. Zechariah has a conversation with an angel, angel Gabriel, out of all angels, and he immediately feels fear. It's because it was a supernatural occurrence. These were not like an everyday type of thing. Now, angels did not appear to people every day, no. Even, even in the Bible, there are only a handful of appearances of angels. There aren't many, and they're usually right around great big moments in redemptive history, kind of like, you know, the preceding of, of Jesus' birth. In fact, you have to remember this. We have to remember this, that God had been silent for 400 years. That's four centuries. That's longer than our country has been a country. Longer than that. Just, no, just, just picture that. For 400 years, God had not spoken since the prophet Malachi. God had been silent. Now, here are the people of God. They're waiting for a word of God, right? They're waiting for the Messiah. They're waiting for the fulfillment of the promises of God. Now, even though they're in their own land, right, they're back home, they are under the rule of the pagan Romans. We know this. 
And in a way, they really felt that they were still living in exile from God because God had not yet answered, had not yet fulfilled the promises of the Messiah. This was the national scene, but also the personal scene is Zechariah and Elizabeth, and she's barren. They can't have kids. That's their predicament. That's their situation they are in. And it's into that situation that God sends a message. This is very important. Church, this is always how God works. God works in the midst of the worst possible human situation. And he visits his people. He visits the human scene. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones, just the way he put it. He said, men's limit, men's extremity is God's opportunity. Men's limit, men's extremity is God's opportunity. What Zechariah needed, what the whole nation of Israel needed, what you and I need in our own lives is a supernatural divine visit, divine visitation. That's all we need. And by the way, that happened in a big, big way, historically. That happened in the advent of Jesus Christ and the coming of Jesus Christ, the incarnation, which is all about, of course, Jesus, who is Emmanuel, God with us. It happened already, historically. And that's what we're celebrating today, amen? That's what we should be celebrating every single day. But listen, even in our personal lives, salvation takes place when there's a divine visitation. Historically, again, it happens through the gift of the Son, Jesus Christ, which happened again in the incarnation of Christ. But personally and existentially and experientially, it has to happen in your own life through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Amen? As God sends His Spirit into our hearts, and as he regenerates us and brings us to a new life in him, has that visitation happened in your life? Did the Holy Spirit make the incarnation of Jesus, the coming of Jesus in the world, personal in your life? Or is it just a historical event for you and not an altering, a life-altering one? Where now you're a new creation, where, where now Jesus lives inside of you through the person of the Holy Spirit, and now you have a relationship with the God of the universe. Friends, just as Zachariah and Elizabeth were literally barren, so you and I are barren spiritually. Until God comes and visits us in a personal, personal, tangible way. It's not so much man reaching up to God. No, 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 no. It's actually God reaching down to men. That's what a gift is. You don't work for it. You just receive it. Amen? It's God coming and doing a new work in your life and in, and in my life, but in a personal, tangible, life-altering way. Charles Wesley, he was a preacher and a composer, captured this so well in one of the verses of his Christmas hymn, Hark the, the herald angels sing. You ever heard this verse? It's actually a fourth one, I think, in the song. It's just amazing how much gospel gets across our airways, but not too many people pick it up. And it says, and I quote, Come, desire of nations. Check this out. Come, fix in us thy humble home. I love that. And then he says, Rise the woman's conquering seed. Braze in us the serpent's head. There's like so much theology in that. And then he goes, Adam's likeness now efface, stamp thine image in its place. Final Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. How powerful is that? 
This is a sermon. This is what salvation is, church. Salvation is all about Christ through the Spirit fixing his humble home in our hearts. It's about him conquering. It's about him bruising the serpent's head. This is going back all the way to Genesis 3. Meaning defeating the devil, defeating death, breaking the power of sin in our life, and reinstating us, restoring us into the love of God. Amen? It's a big salvation. It is a marvelous salvation that we should rejoice over. But with all due respect, until that happens in you, until you have experienced a divine visitation through the Holy Spirit regenerating your heart, bringing you from death to life, bringing you into the love of God, you're simply not a Christian. You are not saved no matter how many Christmas services you attend. Salvation is always about a divine visitation. It was true historically, and it's true personally. The second truth I want us to notice here about this marvelous salvation in our song is that, so number two, salvation is accomplished through the display of God's mighty power. So again, salvation is a divine visitation in which God displays his mighty, his colossal, his immense power. Again, look at the text, verses 68 to 69. Let me read it for us. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Have you ever read that and wondered, what is a horn of salvation? Is this a trumpet? Is this a French horn? What kind of a horn is this? What kind of an instrument is this? Now, just in case you were wondering, it's not talking about any musical instrument at all. Uh, the ancient world was an agricultural society, right? It was an agrarian society and culture. They were very familiar with animals, much more than we are today, right? And a horn of salvation was a reference to a horn of an animal. Craig Keener says this, and I quote, Because a horn could give an animal the victory, in battle, it indicated strength and power. Now, you might think about a ram who's getting ready to charge. Not sure if, about you, but I do not want to find out and experience the brute force of a ram when he shakes his head at me, right? And he's ready to just charge full force and just plow through me like a rag. Don't want to experience that. I've seen it on TV many times. So the horn was a symbol of strength and a symbol of power. That's what it was. So this is language that you often find in the Old Testament. For example, in the Psalms, Psalm 18.2 specifically, David is praying, and he just piles up metaphor on top of metaphor that all speak about the strength and the power of God. And he says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation. There you have it. My stronghold. David is talking about the power of God that is to come when Messiah, when Jesus steps into the world. Now again, Zechariah had personally seen and experienced the power of God through the voice of the angel, the message from God, right? He experienced it personally. And then he initially responded in disbelief and unbelief. Remember what happened? He was struck dumb, right? He was, he was unable to speak for nine months until, until he utters, you know, uh, his son's name, John. It's only when he names the child John, right, in obedience to God's command, 
It's only then that his tongue is loosed and he's able to speak again. How interesting. And the first thing out of his mouth is this song, is this theme. It's a song, Blessed be the Lord God who's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. That's the first thing that he says, pointing to the power and the strength of God in the salvation that he brings through Jesus Christ. It seems here that Zechariah also understands that the display of the power of God is not just what he's experienced himself with the angel in that, that whole scene, but for sure, it's about what's coming, and he was pointing to that because he already knows that his wife's cousin, Mary, is also carrying a child, the child. And he knows that this conception is the summa cum laude of all conceptions, right? As a virgin, she, was, she has conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she's bearing the Messiah. So we know that he's talking about the Messiah because he says he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Well, Zechariah isn't from the house of David. His wife, Elizabeth, is not from the house of David. But Jesus will be born in the house of David. So that's very clear that he's talking about the Messiah, Jesus. So here's the mysterious thing about the power of God. And even in this passage, even though there are supernatural things happening, isn't it amazing how so often in in the Bible, in scriptures, the power of God is clothed in humility and is clothed many times in human weakness? Isn't that interesting? That's how you know that this salvation is not man-made. God's power comes. God's power arrives, but there isn't a lot of pomp and fanfare. Jesus clearly is not born in Jerusalem as a king or in Rome. Jesus doesn't come riding on a white charger. Clearly, he doesn't ascend from heaven in a visible, powerful, glorious way. He will, though, at his second coming, but not then, right? He's born as a baby in Bethlehem. He comes as a child in a manger out of all places. This is God's way a lot of times, isn't it? God displays his power through the means of humility and human weakness many times. And that's the story of the incarnation and also... It's the story of the crucifixion, isn't it? Where God's greatest demonstration of power in all the history of redemption, in all the history of the world, is in the cross. Where Jesus, the God-man, dies in humility, in seeming weakness for our sins. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.25, he says, The foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than man. Why is that? Because it's through the foolishness of the cross and this message being preached, the message that we preach every single day that brings, that God brings salvation to the world and to our hearts. Amen? Salvation, it always involves a divine visitation. And then it's accomplished through the display of God's immense power. But it's power that's clothed in humility and many times in human weakness. The third truth that about this sweet salvation that Jesus brings to us that we notice in our song for today is this. So the third thing. Salvation includes forgiveness of sins and renewal and holiness. I know big words. Holiness is a big word. 
Let me say that again. Salvation includes forgiveness of sins and renewal and holiness. There are other things, of course. There are other elements that we could talk about when we talk about salvation, of course. But I want to be faithful to our passage, to our song today. What we have in our, in our song are these two things, forgiveness of sins and a, a living in holiness, a living in righteousness. Now, a true and genuine salvation, friend, includes these two things, forgiveness of sins and a living in holiness, a living in righteousness. Let's, let's look at verses 74 to 78 and observe these two things. That we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear... Did you catch that? There's a purpose to our salvation. There's a a purpose that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. How beautiful. And you, child, now this is, he's speaking directly to his son, John the Baptist. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. So, I mean, there's a lot that's said right there, of course. But just notice these two things. These two things are emphasized by by Zechariah. Namely, that we are saved in order to serve God in holiness and in righteousness. So there's the purpose of our saving, just in case you're wondering, why did God save me? Well, there you have it. And second, that John the Baptist's role in preparing the way of the Lord is to give the knowledge of salvation, and here we go, in the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness and holiness. Forgiveness and righteousness. Forgiveness and sanctification. There's so many substitutes. There's so many different words that we can use. These are the two parts of salvation that we find in the song. Now, you remember that John's role was the forerunner of the Messiah, right? He was really the last of the Old Testament prophets. He was. He, was, he came like, uh, he was the one who came like Elijah, fulfilling the prophecies in Malachi 4, which are also referenced here in our chapter, Luke 1. Now, he comes doing what? Well, he comes preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's what he was doing. That's what John That's what John came to do, to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's calling people to repent. He's calling people to get baptized. And he's pointing them to the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Repentance and forgiveness, they always go together. Because repentance is a change of mind, metanoia, a change of heart. And it includes a turning away from your sin and turning to God for forgiveness. And so, again, Zechariah is saying that this glorious salvation Jesus purchased for us always includes this repentance from our sins, this turning away from our sin and and towards God for our forgiveness. By the way, by the way, this turning away does not mean that you get your life in order before you come to Christ. No, I'll say that again. This repentance from our sins, this turning away, right, does not mean that you get your life in order and then come to God. No. It means that as we turn away from our sins and turn towards God, He is the one that removes the penalty of sin for us. Amen? He is the one that removes the guilt of sin for us. Amen? And He is the one that fixes our life and changes our life. Amen? And how many times I heard that in my life? 
that, hey, you, I think you believe. What stops you to get baptized? Oh, oh, no, I'm not ready. I'm not. I got to do this. What? So you're basing your salvation on your works, on what you do? Because that's what happens at that point. No, no, no. The turning away is that change of mind. Oh, no, I don't want to live in the world. Forget it. God's got such a better life for me. No way. And I want forgiveness of sins. That's what happens in this repentance, this change of mind. And the way I like to say it is that Jesus didn't just die so we, so we can be forgiven of our sin and to continue in our sin. That's not his full plan, no. But he rose from the dead to bring us to a new life in him. That's the whole gospel. He wants to do a sanctifying work in our life. He wants to transform us, to change us, so we can look more and more like him. Well, that's the living in righteousness. That's the living in holiness that Zechariah is talking about. So not just forgiveness of sins, but a renewing work of the Holy Spirit that begins to make us holy, to, to make us set apart, right? To look more like Christ, to love more like Christ, to be patient more like Christ, and so on and so forth. I want to say a few more words about this living in righteousness and living in holiness. Puritan Thomas Watson says it like this, and I quote, After the fall, the affections were misplaced on wrong objects, the affections of the heart. And then he says, in sanctification, which again, that's just a biblical word for living more and more like Christ, living in holiness, living in righteousness. So in sanctification, these affections are turned into a sweet order and harmony. The grief placed on sin, the love on God, and the joy on heaven. So what he's saying basically is when God saves us, we literally come to life in a spiritual sense. That's what what happens. We are dead spiritually, and salvation means that our spirit is awakened. Our spirit comes to life. In sanctification or living in righteousness, or living in holiness, what Zechariah is saying is the ongoing work of recalibrating the affections of our heart. That's what it is. Or recalibrating the loves of our heart to cherish what God cherishes, to love what God loves. Does that make sense? So sanctification or living in holiness is more than just saying no to sin, like white-knuckling, no, 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 I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it, and then you do it. Sanctification or living in holiness says yes to loving God and says yes to what God loves. It's a matter of the heart. Sanctification is all about retraining our delights, retraining our loves. A pastor said it like this, and I quote, The battle to be holy, the battle for sanctification, is a battle fought at the level of what we love, of what we cherish of what we treasure, and of what we delight in. So what does, what does salvation involve? What it involves having your sins forgiven and also having your heart renewed, changed, and transformed. Again, salvation is a gift from God. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, that we're saved. Amen. But these two things need to be a part of our salvation, having your sins forgiven and then having your heart renewed and changed and transformed. Once again, to just apply this to us, we should ask ourselves the question, have we experienced this divine visitation, the Spirit working in our hearts? 
Have we truly experienced the forgiveness of sins through the blood, through the blood of Jesus Christ and the cross? Have we, have we experienced that? And have we experienced this transformation of life and so that our hearts are being renewed, so that our hearts are being changed? Oh, this doesn't mean sinless perfection. It doesn't mean that. On this side of eternity, we're never going to be perfect. <laughs> I assure you of that. But the whole life is a of a Christian is one of repentance, one of turning away from sin and looking to God, isn't it? But if there's no brokenness over your sin, if there's no mourning over your sin, if Christ has never come in, in the power of the Spirit and changed something in you, right, then you should ask the question if you really experience the gospel in your heart or you just have a theoretical knowledge of it. Salvation, again, involves both forgiveness of sins and renewal and holiness. The last thing about this sweet salvation that Jesus brings to us that we notice in our song today is this, number four. Salvation is God's light breaking into the darkness of the world. This is the last thing, and I'm almost done, and in some ways this is a summary of all the rest. Now, again, we probably could have had like seven or eight things about salvation in this, in this song but this is the last one. That salvation is God's light breaking into the darkness of the world. Now look at verses 78 to seven and 79. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Did you catch the word sunrise in there? Some of the old translations say the day spring. The idea here is that the day springs up as the sun rises, and it's called the dawn of the morning. Now, Zechariah here is thinking of the Messiah about to be born, and he's saying, he's excited, hey, everyone, the dawn is here, everyone. The sun is rising, and God is visiting us. He's bringing light to our darkness finally, lastly, the long-awaited, long-prophesied Messiah, Savior of the world, is here. Again, this language of light shining out of darkness is Old Testament language. This is language that you find over and over again in the Old Testament. For example, the book of Numbers, the Bible says, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall arise out of Israel. What does a star do? Well, it shines. It brings light. Malachi 4, this is how the Old Testament actually ends. Remember, 400 years of silence, but this is how it ends. Malachi 4, 2. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Who is the sun of righteousness? Well, it's Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He is the morning star. He's the day spring. He's the sunrise. He's the light of the world. He's all of that. The question again for each one of us this morning is this. Has God brought light into the darkness of your heart? That's the point. The darkness of your life, if we learned anything in the last few years living on planet Earth, is that life on Earth can be very dark. Very dark. But I want to ask you personally, was there a time when you were without hope and without God in the world? Where everything was dark? Where you were hopeless and where you just kind of existed but without really living? You know what I mean? If that's still the case, then something needs to happen. The Spirit of God needs to open your eyes to see the truth of who Jesus really is. To make Jesus beautiful to you. 
Because he is. So that the light of the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ breaks into the darkness of your heart and changes your life. Until that happens to us, we're not really saved. We're not really Christian. But when that happens, all of a sudden, Jesus is beautiful and wonderful and glorious. All of a sudden, sin is so less appealing. All of a sudden, we have a new life. All of a sudden, life takes on a new meaning, right? We have a new purpose for existence. We have a new eternity. We have new dreams and new desires to pursue those new dreams. Why? Because God has come. That's why. Because God visited with us with his grace. That's what salvation is. And that's what we all desperately need. And this is what Jesus came to do in his incarnation, in his crucifixion, in his resurrection, and now ascended on high through the power of the Holy Spirit. He brings the light into our darkness. Friend, have you experienced this? If you haven't, I want to invite you this morning to turn to Christ, to look to Christ and receive the salvation he has for you. Don't just go through the Christmas season enjoying the carols and the lights and the entrapments, or maybe you're not. Maybe you're just the Grinch, and that goes for you as well. Don't just go through this season locked up in your apartment or house. Don't do that. No. Jesus came for you too. To bring light into the darkness of your soul. Would you stand with me? I want to pray for us. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this moment that we get to celebrate you, Jesus. We're tired of this world. We're tired of what the world promises to us. And never delivers. We're tired of our hearts and our desires and our longings and our dreams sometimes. So, Father, I ask that you would come in in the hearts of those that you have not yet and bring light and bring salvation and bring satisfaction and bring joy and peace. Would you save more people, Father? You brought an amazing, sweet, astonishing salvation through Jesus Christ, the Messiah, into our world. And I am experiencing it. And many of us, if not all of us here, are experiencing that light into the darkness, Lord God. And we are your sons and your daughters, and we just want to celebrate that. But maybe there are people here this morning that have not experienced that that are not saved, they, haven't, they have not received that salvation from you. I pray that you would bring it in their hearts. I pray that you would, Lord God, regenerate their hearts. Bring them from death to life, spiritually speaking. And give them the gift of faith to believe, to believe that you are their Savior. Show them and show all of us that we are the problem and you are the only solution. That we would humbly come at the foot of the cross, confessing our sin, 
to receive forgiveness, to receive this beautiful, sweet salvation from you. And then, Lord, to proceed to obey you and follow you. And the first thing is that we would get baptized, Father, if we haven't. I pray for that. I pray for that for every single soul here. Thank you for the joy and the peace that you have brought in our hearts. For those that are saved and but maybe tired and stressed and anxious and fearful and just ask that in this season, Father, we would you would draw us in, Father, to to be disciplined enough to seek the silence, to seek that time of prayer with you in silence. To shut off our phones and our gadgets and and to spend some time so that we would again marvel at how great of a salvation we have in you, Jesus. Please help us to not have a laissez-faire attitude towards this beautiful and astounding salvation that you brought through Jesus. May we again be in awe and wonder of what you've done for us at the cross, Jesus. And so be humbled to take our rightful places at the foot of the cross, honoring you and worshiping you and singing to you the song of our salvation. Thank you that you are a good God. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.